Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. And oddly enough, we're actually not turning anywhere else this morning. We're just going to be on the same page all morning. And so uh, I realized that last night, actually. I was like, wow, we're not really turning anywhere else. So uh, that'll make it easy for you to find it and then keep it and not lose it. But we're in Mark 10, 29 through 30. And as you're turning there, I want to open with a question. And here's the question that I want us to open with together this morning. Do you believe with me that it is difficult not to be focused on ourselves? I'm going to ask the question again. Do you believe with me that it is difficult not to be focused on ourselves? Or to say it in another way, do you believe with me that it is easy to be really focused on ourselves? Now, as you're sitting there, you might be thinking, well, that's not my goal every day. I don't just launch off into how can I only focus on myself. But let's dig into this a little bit. I'm talking about an inward focus as families and individuals where days come and go, and it really seems hard enough just to keep our own schedules in order, our own households from imploding, and, and our own lives the way they should be. I think actually that this is very common and a very difficult thing to focus mainly on your own family, your own household, your own land, whatever it might be. Let me explain. Some of your children, like mine, want to eat every day. Sometimes three times a day. And the day is usually so busy that when dinner time comes around, somehow it's always a surprise. Do you have that problem? Are we the, are we the only ones? We're come like five or six o'clock, it's like dinner. We forgot for the 8,000th time that the family is going to want to eat within the hour. And it's always a surprise because we're busy. So at our house, this is kind of what it looks like. It, it takes a lot just to make sure everyone eats. So we're talking about, is it easy just to focus on ourselves? For, for, at our house, it's a lot just to make sure everyone eats. And they, for the record, they rarely do when we actually are at the meal. They want to eat the snacks between the meals, but that's not what we're talking about right now. In our house, this is seven meals every time we sit down. So we have seven people in our, in our family, so we've got to make seven plates, seven meals, which means um, part of our responsibility as a family is we do that three times a day. That's 21 meals per day, 147 meals per week, 588 meals per month, 7,056 per year, just to make sure that everyone eats. You get the point, right? I have five kiddos, four children at three different schools. And I recently found myself feeling like, man, we really spend a lot of time taking them to school and just picking them up. So I'm a numbers guy, numbers nerd, so I added it up. We spend an average of 10 and a half hours per week just dropping kids off at school and picking them up. That's an average of 42 hours per month in the car sitting in pickup lines and drop-off lines. That's a lot. 42 hours per month. Take it out a year. That means you will spend 21 in full days of every year taking kids to school and dropping them off, sitting there in the car. And this actually doesn't include all the back and forth to all the extracurricular activities. And then there's laundry. I won't go into the numbers because it's too depressing, but there's laundry. So just keeping our own lives in order, we have to feed everybody. We have to get everybody to all of the places, and then we have to try to do so with somewhat clean clothes. Those are just three small things. And on top of this little handful of examples are all the time that should be given to marriage, jobs, church, keeping up friendships, 
keeping your house in good order, mowing the yard, things like that. So I would ask, what is your version of that story? I gave you a little snapshot of mine. I really, as we're, as we're going to talk about these verses this morning, I really want you to take a minute and think about what, what is your version? Where, you spend, where do you spend a lot of time? What overwhelms you? What is consuming your resources and your time when it comes to family stuff? Because it's different for everybody. And I should say, this isn't just if you have a big family. You can be single and have every moment of your day accounted for before your day starts. I remember when I was single. I remember when I was in college. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, my whole life is planned out for me and I don't even have time to breathe when I want to breathe because i got to go to this class and do this thing and, and all that. So it's not just a big family issue. It's a human issue, especially in our culture. So what does your story look like? I believe that everyone is generally pretty darn busy. Is anyone in here this morning sitting around trying to figure out what to do with all of your extra time and money? That would be one way to consider it. Anyone in here saying, man, I need to talk to someone. I just get all this extra time, all this extra money, and uh, I just don't even know what to do with it. I'm just, I'm just so not strapped. <laughs> um, generally, I think that most people are pretty stretched. So what I'm getting at is that it's a challenge to focus on much more than our own lives, our own families, our own households, and our own lands, our own friends, our own marriages, and our own responsibilities. It's a lot. And I think it's important for us to establish that as sort of a reality as we consider these verses. Now let's consider the verses. Mark 10, 29 through 30 says this. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Those are our two focus verses this morning. And I kind of want to just open with a bit of a confession that we're going to look at some context here. And for most of my life up until last year, I, I always knew the verses that led up to this about the rich young ruler and the camel and the eye of the needle. That was familiar. And then the verse after, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But this little hundredfold promise was totally foreign to me until about a year ago. So I'm not preaching this as someone who has all of this figured out. I continue to read my Bible, and I continue to realize, man, there are things that I have not seen, and this is one of them. So, Jesus says that there is a 100-fold blessing that seems to include houses, families, and lands. So, we've already talked about all these things that consume most of our time, our houses, our families, and our lands, but then there's this 100-fold blessing that seems to talk about the same things, right? To better understand why he is talking about this 100-fold blessing, we have to zoom out and consider the context of these two verses. So look with me at verse 17 in the same chapter. Mark 10, verse 17, and we're going to read through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Generally, this seems like a good thing, right? If you were getting ready for work and someone came up, Hey, 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 dude, 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 hey, what do I have to do to have eternal life? You'd be like, man, I didn't even have to try. Man, I I'm going to tell this guy about Jesus. This is awesome. This seems like a really great little thing. Teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus responds, essentially saying, only God is good, so you're calling me good, but I'm not quite sure that you really think I'm God. 
So Jesus is addressing this really great question, but he's addressing it truthfully. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So then he answers the question, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not defraud, and honor your father and your mother. And this rich young man says to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. At this point, he's thinking, that's really good news. He's thinking, "Uh, what do I got to do to be saved? And God says, you know the commandments. And he's like, bingo, I've done those, got it. Where's my gold star? I'm on this. This is going well. That's the answer I was hoping I would hear because I'm doing all the right things. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. The thing that we need to take from the story, we could, we could preach on this for weeks. There are so many things here, but for us this morning, the thing that we need to take away from the story is that the rich young man had things in his life, mainly great riches, that were ultimately more important than Jesus. He had great riches, and what Jesus was getting at the heart at is that ultimately those great riches were more important than Jesus. Anything that you are not willing to give up for Jesus is an idol. For him, it was wealth. Now look at verses 23. So it's kind of a sad story, right? It's not a real uplifting thing. You're like, man, that didn't go well. He he walked away unsaved. And now look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, exclamation point. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying it's not easy. Jesus is saying it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus starts repeating himself, it's time to pay attention. He just said it twice. His point is clear. People who have a lot in this world are going to have great difficulty entering the kingdom of God. And even if they don't have a lot, just in general, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Then Jesus illustrates the difficulty. So he's given this, we see this thing that plays out with this rich young ruler. Jesus tells him what he needs to hear. He walks away unsaved, unchanged. And then he goes to them and he says, so this is difficult, guys. Disciples, it's difficult for people to enter the kingdom of God. And he says it twice. And now he's going to illustrate what he means. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's been a lot of gymnastics done with these verses over the years, but let me make it simple. Needles are small. Eyes of needles are smaller than needles. Camels are very big. That's what Jesus is saying. It's easier for a big camel to go through the little eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 25, or verse 26. His disciples, they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? I want you all to climb into this moment with me, please. 
there's been this thing that happens, there's this illustration given, and it's made very clear that it's difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then it's hard for people to let loose of the world that has a death grip on them. And in the moment that he explains it, the 12 who are actually following him look at him and say, can, can anyone be saved? Is this impossible? Like, they're probably thinking, that guy just walked away unsaved. Are we going to do the same thing? Because they have possessions. They're in a world that's full of blessing, and they're on the receiving end of blessings. They were willing to walk away from things, but they're sitting here going, hold on, I'm hearing what Jesus is saying. Can anyone be saved? Like, I'm just climb into the tension of that moment for the disciples. Hearing this from Jesus, they're astonished. How can we be saved? If, it, if it's so difficult, God, how can it happen? How can we be saved? The Lord responds in verse 27. Or sorry, yes, the Lord responds in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. Guys, we, we use this verse for like sports stuff and school stuff. With man, it's impossible, but for God, all things are possible. And, we, and I think sometimes we throw it around. God is sitting here saying, Yo, you ask how anyone can be saved? God. Otherwise, it's completely impossible. But with God, this impossible thing of being brought into the kingdom because of the death grip that sin and, and death and the world has on you, with God, this impossible thing becomes possible. Jesus says, with God, uh, with, with man, it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What a relief. Jesus is essentially saying entering into the kingdom of God isn't something you can do on your own. The rich young ruler is the example. He thought, I did all the right things, and Jesus says it's not enough. You can't enter into the kingdom of God without God. Jesus is saying it's something that I and my Father do for you, and it's only impossible without us. Jesus is leveling the playing field. It doesn't matter if you are wealthy or if you are poor. You can't get into the kingdom of God without God. But with God, the impossible becomes possible. So what we're doing right here is we're taking our context and we're narrowing down on those two verses about that 100-fold blessing. Okay? With God, it's impossible. But we're, without God, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. And we're narrowing in. And then, of course, leave it to Peter to say out loud what maybe the other guys were thinking. Peter says in verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. What would you say to Peter in that moment? Difficulty. Jesus, King Jesus, the Savior of the world, is explaining how difficult it is to get into the kingdom. And Peter's like, But we, we left everything. My response may have been like, hey, Peter, just stop. Just stop talking. Just quit it. Or, 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 Peter, you don't understand the blessings that are coming your way, so let's not talk too much about your sacrifices that you're making for me right now. That's probably how I would respond. Peter, you're, act, you're talking about everything that you've given up, but I'm about to die for you, Peter, so stop talking. That's how I would respond. But that's not how Jesus responds. That's not how Jesus responds. Jesus responds by saying to Peter, who is asking a question. See, or he's not asking a question, he's implying. See, we've left everything and followed you. He's saying, so, so what for us? And look at how Jesus responds in verse 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. This is our context. Jesus is looking at this first group of guys who have left their previous life to follow him and essentially says, there's going to be more of you. It's probably good news for them because they don't really know what's going on right now. He's saying, there's going to be more of you. By the power of God, there will be others who are willing to leave all that is precious to them, willing to sacrifice greatly, willing to lean into the unknown to enter my kingdom. Jesus says, there are those who, for the sake of me and for the sake of the gospel, will give up everything by the power of God that was previously dear to them, and they will follow me. And for those who do so, there is a 100-fold blessing. So let's get into like the who, what, when, where, okay, of this blessing. Now we're going to dig into the blessing. Who are these people that he's talking about? Who are the people who are going to be on the receiving end of this hundredfold blessing? At this point, the New Testament church does not yet exist. Jesus has not died, conquered death, ascended, and now the church is established. Pentecost hasn't happened. Like, who are these people? All of the followers of Christ are sitting right in front of him. Jesus is speaking about something that is going to begin to happen in the near future. He's speaking to them about something that's about to start. It's about to begin. So right now, before the things happen, who are these people that will one day completely surrender their lives to this Jesus? Who are these people who are going to be acted upon by the power of God so that they might take something that was before totally impossible and it be made possible as they come to Christ? Who are these people? And the answer is lost people. Who are they right now? In this, in this setting, who are they? They're lost. They're awaiting this impossible thing to be made possible through the power of God. They are lost people. That is who this 100-fold blessing is for. Lost people will receive a 100-fold blessing when saved by Jesus. If you're taking notes, that would be something really important to write down. Lost people will receive a 100-fold blessing when they are saved by Jesus. That's the who of this little situation. And then we can talk about the when. When will they get this? Uh, let me ask what first comes to your mind. Don't answer out loud. It'll be weird for everybody. What first comes to your mind when I say, when do you get your blessings? When do you get your blessings for following Jesus? When do you anticipate that? I would imagine that many of you are thinking, well, I mean, it's the eternal life thing. It's kind of big. So like eternally. And I think our minds pretty naturally go to the eternal realities that, uh, as opposed to any blessings that we might get temporally. And so we have to ask, when is this 100-fold blessing coming? And it's tricky because I think most of us think of such blessings as eternal realities. When we die, we will not be separated from God. We'll be brought closer to God. He conquered our death, and so we'll have eternal blessings for forever, which is awesome. Sometimes we think as though maybe we shouldn't expect earthly blessings because they're so much less important than eternal life. As if, you know, I, 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 there's no blessing to expect here in this life because I'm going to have eternal life. But again, that's not what Jesus says. Look, look at the verse in verse 29 and 30. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother, father, children, and lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. 
So this gets interesting, right? This is a massive blessing that's supposed to happen not just later, not just this sort of eternal family thing. It's supposed to happen right now in this time. So to be clear, there's a 100-fold blessing that will come to people who were previously lost when they entered the kingdom of God, and the blessing will be received in this time, or to say it another way, in this life before they enter into eternity. So lost people, acted upon by God in an amazing way, become saved, 100-fold blessing right now. Now y'all might think, oh, he went on sabbatical and he became a prosperity preacher. This is interesting. Well, I think the next question that makes the most sense is where does this blessing come from? And if I was at this point to say simply send checks and money orders to Scott Sutton at Crosspoint Fellowship, you would know I've lost my mind. I really want to know where does this blessing come from. I, I see who it's for and I see what it is. But where does that blessing come from? For these people who lost their mother, where do they get a hundred mothers? How, how does this shake out? Like, I really want to know where does this come from? Where do these families come from? Where do these homes come from? Where do these lands come from? And here is where it gets really personal because the answer is super simple. Us. Us. I was really expecting more of a gasp at that point. Like, (gasps) us? I don't have a hundred homes. I'm only one mom. The answer is us. The church. Jesus' promise of this 100-fold blessing will only come through the church. Jesus, in his infinite goodness, is saying, I will die and I will conquer death so that these people will have eternal life and they will have life to the fullest now and eternal life for forever. And if they have lost their home, they will find 100 homes in the church. If they have lost their family... If they've been shunned and rejected, they will find 100 families in this beautiful bride that I will gather in. This will be a bride who is full of hospitality and who is full of love and who is eager to look not only to their own interests but also to the interests of others. Where does the blessing come from? If it doesn't come from us, it will not come from somewhere else. This is a blessing that is fulfilled in the church, this 100-fold blessing. Guys, this is why it is so important to address the issues of our busyness. This is why it's important to address the issues of how busy and how full our schedules are because this 100-fold blessing is supposed to be happening like in your house and in your family and in your belongings and in your time. If we are too busy to fulfill these blessings, these new believers will not find them elsewhere. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about who we are and what we do as the church. We gather. We don't neglect to meet together. We contribute financially. We worship. We serve. There's all these things that we do when we gather, which are really, really important. We gather, we listen to deep sermons, and then we go to a life group, and we talk deeply about those deep sermons because we want to understand who we are in Christ and what this looks like, and we breathe in, and we breathe in, and we breathe in, and Jesus is saying part of that healthy church is also breathing out. It is breathing out. We breathe in, 
And according to these verses, we must breathe out. An inward-focused church will produce inward-focused families. Or to say it another way, a church that only focuses on their own church will produce families that only focus on their own families. And I think it's really easy to do. We take church seriously. You've heard that. We want to do it right. Part of doing it right is not only focusing on your own church and your own family. We breathe out. We consider the lost. We consider how this 100-fold blessing can be fulfilled through us as is God's design. Inward-focused church will produce families that focus only on their own families or individuals who focus only on their own lives. You will be very very diligent to have your quiet times. You will be very diligent to have your your personal times and study and to gather with more church people. But there's the threat that maybe you don't ever gather with people who aren't church people. And that's where this 100-fold blessing comes in. So let's personalize this. So we've been speaking in sort of some vague generalities. Let's personalize this. Consider a Muslim who comes to Christ. Consider a Muslim who comes to Christ For most who do this, they will literally be cut off from mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, homes, and lands. They will be disowned. They will be shunned. And immediately as they begin to follow Christ, they will feel lonely, lost, disoriented. Jesus planned to bless them in their faithfulness that he has caused in them is through you. Jesus wants that newly converted person to hear, hey, my family is your family. It's not just my family. My family is your family. My home is your home. My car is your car. My time is your time. Let's do life together. Come in. I welcome you. What I want us to understand here is we We do this because they're us at this point. I'm not just talking about doing something noble. Like, I'm not saying, hey, church, let's be noble and open our homes to people who are lonely. Psalm 68, we have a wall over in the other building that says God puts the lonely into families. And we've got a bunch of pictures of adoptions that have happened. There's a number of families in this body that have adopted and it's beautiful because that, that, that verse, God puts the lonely into families, is really central to, to this belief that we have that we should care for orphans. And if you didn't, if you didn't have a, a burden for orphans, it's not likely that you would ever adopt. But God puts the lonely into families. What, what I want you all to understand this morning is that's not just about adoption. God puts the lonely into families Because it's his family. He's bringing them into his family. So I'm not asking you to go do something that's sort of noble, sort of an above and beyond the call of duty to actually have lost people over to your house or to open your home to someone who is now lonely. I'm saying that's what God does. It's the only normal response is the fitting response to what Christ has accomplished is to open our homes to people who wouldn't normally be there. Like, let me, I want to try to illustrate this. This is, this, gets, this is where it gets weird. I told him before, hey, there's a weird part of the sermon that's either going to be horrible or maybe somewhat fruitful. This is that part. Okay, everybody? Can I be a little vulnerable? 
if the Lord blesses your family with a child through birth or adoption, you don't say, I, I wonder if we're going to have any time for them. You understand that? If the Lord blesses your family through, through birth or through adoption, your first question isn't, I'm not sure if we have enough time for like another kid. That question's off the table. That's your kid. Like, you will put yourself in legal jeopardy if that's what you say. I don't, I don't know if we're going to have time. I got like three others. They all want to eat every day. You see what I'm saying? We don't ask that question. We don't ask that question, am I going to have time for this new kid? So let's take this example. You're, you're burdened for orphans, so you do something about it. If you're not burdened for lost people, you're probably not going to do anything about it. But what God is doing is bringing lost people into the family. And if we say to ourselves, I don't know if I have time for them, it's no different than saying you don't know if you're going to have time for another member of your family. Because you're not making them your family. God is making them your family. Do you understand that? You're not saying, you know what, I'm willing to make them my family. No! They're your family at that point. They're yours. One anotherness, interconnectedness. I wonder if sometimes, I wonder if sometimes, if we're not careful, we might act as though we're the biological kids and we're adopting a kid when it comes to new people coming into the church, new people coming to faith, that maybe we can sort of sit and think, and we've been here a while, and, and it kind of feels like there's someone new, and it's good, you know, I don't know how this is going to work. But I think we should just acknowledge as we're talking about this, there are no biological kids in God's house. There are no biological kids in God's house. We're all adopted. So it's not hard for us to identify with those who have recently gone through the same miracle that we went through of God taking this impossible thing of you being rescued from sin and death and bringing you into a family. We were brought into that family. And if we view it like that, and we view like that we're all adopted, it changes our burden for those who are currently lost or who are currently making a transition from their previous life where they're disowned and they're shunned and they've lost everything. It's not going, doing the noble thing and saying, I'm going to let you be a part of my family. It's doing the worshipful thing, and all of worship is a response to what God has done, and God has made them your family. So they're your family. And you love them the way you love your own family, and you bring them in, and you invite them in. Consider the person who's living a lesbian or a homosexual life. I know the kids are in there, and I know those are hard words. You should probably talk about it. That's the culture we live in. If they repent and follow Christ, they are walking away from the LGBTQ community. Okay? Now, I wonder what you feel in your heart when I say that out loud. Whether you agree with the LGBTQ community or not, it's their community. They're leaving their community. If God does this amazing work through evangelism and through proclamation of truth, where someone is drawn out of darkness and into light, Christian people have to have some empathy. We have to be able to look at that and say, oh my gosh, that must be hard, rather than acting like they might have some disease that you catch if you have them over for dinner. 
We have to have empathy. We have to say, that is their community. That is their support system. Whether we agree with it or not, that's the way that it is. That is who they call when they need someone. That is who they call when they need some sort of support or guidance. That is who they call when they need a ride or to talk. And Jesus says they need to know who to call now. They need to understand that you're their family and you're going to be the ones to help them understand that. You are their community. You are their support system. This same Jesus who is lovingly willing to address the idol in the life of the rich young ruler is the same Jesus who lovingly says to all of us here and to all of those who come in, you need a home. You need support. This is not a lone ranger endeavor. You need mothers. If you don't have a mother because you lost your mother because your life was incredibly difficult for whatever thousand different reasons it can be difficult, here you have some moms who will teach you how to make dinner and teach you how to work through hard things and teach you how to love bonehead husbands and teach you how to, to, to balance all the craziness of life. you got a lot of moms here if you need, a lot of, if you need moms. Or you can be a dad who can... Who can who can be to a young man or an older man, someone who helps him to walk through life and navigate all the craziness and not just be typically masculine in the sort of American masculinity, but how to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How to raise your children in the fear of the Lord. You know what? If someone needs that, when they land here because God did work in their lives, they should have it 100-fold, 100 times over. When God brings people out of darkness into life, they should not have to guess as to where their support is going to come from. It comes from the church. My home is your home. My family is your family. My dinner table is your dinner table. If you're struggling, call me. If you need a ride, I'll give you a ride. If you need to talk, I'm here. What you're saying is, I'm not too busy for you. In a culture where love is proven through approval, we will have to work harder to prove our love through service and hospitality. Let me say that again. In a culture where love is proven through approval, we live in a culture where their, their definition of love is if you approve of how I live and you approve of what I do, then you love me. But if you speak against how I live or what I do, you don't love me. That's our culture. We live in a culture where love is proven through approval. And as we live in that culture, we as the church, we as those who will be fulfilling this 100-fold blessing, will have to work harder to prove our love through service and through hospitality. Because it's not some strategy that we came up with in an elder meeting. This is God's design. Service and hospitality go a long way to see lost people saved, and to see saved people raised up. It's a beautiful, beautiful design. This is Jesus' design. He, he encourages us, do not neglect to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. It's this thing that we should always be looking for. What do I mean when I say hospitality? Hospitality biblically means this, love of strangers. Now, you might think stranger danger, right? That's the problem we have. Some of all the stranger danger... And I would agree, I'm kind of an overprotective dad. So, you know, kid, you know, parents, if ever there was a sermon where you really need to shepherd your children, it's the sermon where the pastor said, you need to love strangers. 
right? Spend some time on it. But that's what it means. Hospitality is love of strangers. At the heart of hospitality, biblically, is simply having people into your home who wouldn't normally belong there. I love having people into my home that I know and trust. That's not hard. I mean, sometimes actually that is hard because our schedules are so busy. We can't hardly have any healthy friendships. But this is talking about having people into your home who uh, are strangers. That's what hospitality is. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, it, it, let me just stop for a second. It's a phenomenal book. Like really, really good. Some, some of y'all are doing study. Raise your hand if you're doing a, a study on that book or have done a study here. Yeah, there's some of y'all that are reading that book and doing that study. It's a really, really good book. It challenged me in a thousand different ways. But in that book, um, she draws out a pattern from these verses, and the pattern is this. Strangers become neighbors, and neighbors become family. It's not hard. Strangers become neighbors, and neighbors become family. Not fake family, or faux family, or we did a noble thing and made someone a part of our family. No, that's what God is doing. This is the process that he has you in. So your life has to include room for strangers, neighbors, and family. You don't get to opt out of family, neighbors, or strangers. I think the young adult ministry, which is exploding right now, by the way, are going to be making some shirts that say something along the lines of strangers, neighbors, family, that they're going to be selling to raise funds for all the things that are going on. So, you know, in light of the sermon, if you don't buy that book or that shirt, I don't even know if you're saved, but you should um, consider that. Um, it's not possible that unbelievers will come to Christ without hearing the gospel. And it's not likely that they're going to hear the gospel from anyone but a believer. Now, if you're thinking, I know of some very obscure examples that would prove you wrong. Awesome. Those examples are cool and things happen. God does crazy stuff where he draws people to himself in amazing ways. In general, for you and the culture you live in, it's not likely that people are going to come to Christ without hearing the gospel. And it's not likely that they're going to hear the gospel from people who don't know the gospel. That's where you live. That's the process that you are in. This means that now, now we're getting even deeper. It's not just about having the newly believing people in your home. If this is true, this means that your home will need to be open to the lost before they repent. Your life will need to be open to lost people when they're still lost. When, when the world and death and sin still have a death grip on them, your friendship with them is phenomenally important when they're lost. Christian people can't only have Christian friends. If so, we're broken. We're not a healthy church if that's the case. We must have friends who are lost, who have not repented. While they are still living apart from Christ, you are supposed to be their friend. God's design is that through uh, those friendships and those investments, the gospel would be proven. So when I was younger, I had a Sunday school teacher who had lots of cheesy phrases. Anyone ever had a Sunday school teacher full of cheesy phrases? Nope? Okay, cool. I had a few of them. Um, they were, uh, I, I was, the, the thing about them is I hate them, but I remember them. Because they said them all the time. And so this cheesy phrase, as I was reading through these verses, I thought about this phrase. And it was, let me try to say it like, 
People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, I, I still hate the phrase, but I love the sentiment. Maybe a better and less cheesy way of saying this is your relationships have to be at least as strong as your words. That's another theme that Butterfield draws out of these verses in her book. Your relationships have to be as strong as your words. So what that means is if you hope to see lost people become straight, those strangers become neighbors and become family, then that means that you're going to have to invest in them when they're maybe at their worst. And your relationships will have to be made strong. <laughs> when you hold up signs, God hates you and you're going to hell. Guys, as silly as that sounds, there are a lot of professing believers who have adopted that as an effective way to lead people to Christ. What's void there? There's no relationship there. You're just browbeating and saying things that are scary and judgmental. Imagine the difference if you have someone over to your house and you simply say, hey, I want to have you over for dinner. And they say, why? And you say, because I want to cook dinner for you. You're a human being. Did you know that like the, the most vile person on earth, like you have more in common with them than you don't have in common with them? We're human beings. We all need Jesus. We're all fallen. So like what is happening here is you should, in response to this, we should be able to have people into our homes just, just because they're, they're made in the image of our creator and we want to make dinner for them. We want to get to know them. Like don't treat people as projects. Love them because they're people that you're supposed to love. And they're strangers who may one day be family because God's power is real. He does the impossible. And so, yet, imagine the difference if you have people over and, and you, you have dinner, or they start coming to your kids' soccer games or whatever, or you, got, you, got, you just hang out or you start talking on the phone, and, and they're, they're your friends not because they're Christians. They're your friends because they're people. And then through that relationship, you begin to have conversations where you can share gospel. I think that's more what God is talking about, what Jesus is talking about in this 100-fold blessing. This process, it's, it's not tidy. Oh, my gosh. Like, if you're looking for a 1, 2, 3 today, I tried to put notes together for the screen. It was a train wreck. It's this, it's this thing where you're willing to get messy. You're willing to invest. You're willing to have relationships with people, and your relationships have to be as strong as your words. Because if your words are stronger than your relationships, the relationship probably won't last very long. If your only interest is telling people what they're doing wrong and how they're doing it, your relationship's probably not going to last a while. You need to love them because they're human beings, and one day they might be family. It should be noted that this 100-fold blessing comes with persecutions. It says that at the very end. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. For Christians in a fallen world, there will be hard times. But God in his love not only tells us what we're going to have to endure, but he gives us what we will need to endure it. He fills us with his love that we might bless each other and that we might bless the lost. As we prepare to take the supper, we should not lose sight of the reality that though God's design is for each of us to be a part of the fulfillment of this 100-fold blessing, each of us are also on the receiving end of this 100-fold blessing. Like the big, 
the big weight of this sermon has been you should be a part of fulfilling this 100-fold blessing. But as we come to the supper, there are so many in this church that are doing this well. When you open your eyes to it, think about the families that are always helping. Think about those who are always like literally willing to, like your children are like my children and my children are like your children. Like it used to be, like you show up, sometimes it is that way now, you show up at a life group and you don't know whose kids go with who because all the kids are sitting in everyone's laps and it's not like you deal with yours and I'll deal with mine. We're, we're experiencing that blessing right now. There are so many that are doing this well. There are ministries that are growing because they're making a place for people. And so what I'm getting at is probably, I hope, at least in part, everyone in here has experienced this 100-fold blessing. You're not asking to be a part of something that you haven't already been on the receiving end of. So there's two things I want you to consider as we prepare to take the supper and as we distribute the elements. Number one, think on how you have been on the receiving end of this 100-fold blessing. No one in here was born a believer. All believers have at one time been brought from death to life. At one time, God did the miraculous work of saving you. So we take the supper, considering how you've received the 100-fold blessing, and then as we distribute the elements, I just want to encourage you to think how the church is, is a blessing to you, but also how you might fulfill it with others. And go out of your way. There are people who are opening their homes all the time for gatherings and studies and meals and having people over and opening their lives to them. I want to encourage you to encourage those people today. Like, not right now. That's kind of weird. But, like, later today, encourage them um, if, if, they've, if they've fulfilled this. Because sometimes it's easy to preach a sermon like this and make it feel like, um, no one's doing this. And I think a lot of people are doing this. As passionate as I am about us being better at it, I think a lot of people are doing this well. So as we distribute the elements, think over how you've been blessed, who you can encourage later because they've done it, and then think over how you can be a part of fulfilling this 100-fold blessing. He made a seat for us at his table that we might make a seat for others at ours. Let's distribute the elements.